This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. You may have chosen us, but we utterly reject and condemn you. That is the Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ardern, reacting to this act of terrorism undertaken in her country. 49 people murdered in Christchurch, New Zealand. 49 Muslim worshippers massacred in two mosques in that city. Uh, Just as many, it seems, at this point, wounded. Uh, So just a horrific attack. It could have been uh, much worse than it was, which is already pretty horrific as it is. Terrorism is an act of violence motivated by an ideology and a cause. And that appears to be what it is we are dealing with. The latest manifestation of this kind of political violence and terrorism. And it needs to be called out and condemned as such. This ideology of white nationalism and white supremacism. Now the language that the Christchurch shooter used in his manifesto about invaders was the same kind of language used by the gunman at the mosque shooting in Pittsburgh, where 11 people were murdered. That was Jews. These were Muslims. The shooter in Pittsburgh, in fact, blamed Muslims and Jews for bringing invaders to the country. The gunman in Christchurch referred to invaders. That kind of language, when you start to dehumanize people, it makes it that much easier to carry out these horrific acts. These acts of violence and murder. But make no mistake, that is the ideology. That is the ideology underlying this terrorism. And it should be treated as such. Just like the ideology of jihad and Islamic extremism is what's linked to those acts of terrorism. This is the same. This is the same kind of thing. We are dealing with an ideology that is linked to these acts of terrorism. These acts of terrorism are meant to carry out uh, and advance the cause of that ideology. So, yes, we had this uh, attack in New Zealand, the shooting of the mosque in Pittsburgh, shooting at another Jewish center in the U.S., the shooting at a, a Sikh temple in the U.S., of course, the murder of six Muslims at a mosque in Quebec City. These are all manifestations of that. That represents a security threat. These are all acts of terrorism. This is the latest and obviously the most deadly. Sadly, it may not be the last. But we need to recognize it for what it is. And if it's fair and reasonable to expect moderate and peaceful Muslims to condemn acts of terrorism by Islamic extremism, then surely it is not unfair or unreasonable to ask the same of those for whom these white supremacist terrorists claim to be acting for. I think that's how we need to view it. Joining us to talk a bit more about the security implications of all of this and, and the kinds of conclusions we can draw at this point 
Very pleased to welcome to the program Stephanie Carvin, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University. Professor Carvin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Seems like what we're dealing with in New Zealand is is very much, uh, I think, at the level of a terrorist attack, uh, uh, an ideology driving this kind of politically motivated violence. I mean, is is that how you're looking at it right now? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's certainly the language that we've seen, uh, the language of the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern use to describe this as a terrorist attack. And, you know, we can we can get into a conversation about the finer points of legality, but I mean... This appears to have been an attack carried out for ideological reasons, uh, for the purpose of intimidating the public. It has all the ingredients of what I would consider to be a terrorist attack. And obviously there, there's some echoes of what happened in Canada in, in 2017. Of course, there was an attack on a mosque in Pittsburgh recently. There was a disrupted attack in the U.S. by someone who, who really seemed to identify as a white nationalist and a neo-Nazi. What, what can, kind of conclusions can we draw about the, the nature of this ideology, the threat that it poses? Right. So one of the things that we are, or the scholars who look at violent extremism generally are concerned about is the rise of far-right extremism uh, around the world, including Canada. So one of uh, my colleagues at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, she has been working on this and she has found that um, uh, there are at least, there's up to 300 groups in Canada of a far-right nature. Uh, That's an increase of around 100 in the last uh, five years or so. And so, you know, this is an area where there is increasingly um, growth online. The concern for national security services and police services is whether or not these individuals who are increasingly finding like-minded people online are being encouraged to actually mobilize and, and engage in violent extremism. Right, and that, that leap from ideology to, to violence, uh, I mean, is, is it a clear trajectory, or how do we know at what point where somebody or some group might cross that line? And that's a great question, and it's certainly one that national security agencies have been studying, particularly here in Canada. Um, one of the techniques they've come up with is trying to understand what are the indicators of mobilization to violence. So what what is it that, you know, if we look at all the terrorism attacks that we've had or individuals who've mobilized to some kind of support for violent extremism, what are the kinds of activities that they engage in and at what stage of their radicalization? And does that help us then have a better understanding of when someone is likely on the pathway that they're moving from just holding violent extremist thoughts to actually mobilizing on them. So, you know, for example, um, it's early days and what we know about this, the, the person who perpetuated the attack, but, you know, this person appears to have been active online, um, possibly made donations to far-right causes, uh, purchased weapons, began planning. So if you can kind of parcel out at what stages this person had actually engaged in those activities, maybe we have a better understanding of, you know, what are the stages of actually mobilizing to violence. In terms of the Internet's role, I mean, uh, a lot of this hatred really festers on the Internet. But the fact uh, that this individual, you know, he posted his his manifesto online, he uploaded video of the massacre online, that this stuff was bouncing around various uh, websites and platforms uh, as the world was was beginning to to become aware of what was happening. I mean, what what does it tell us about the nexus of these groups and the ideology and in the Internet itself? Well, one of the things that concerns me is that, you know, this individual had clearly developed networks 
online. So that when he posted his manifesto, it was able to spread very quickly. When he posted his live feed, is was was likewise able to do the same thing. So these videos are are online. They'll be online forever now because that's the way the internet works. And it really is. Um, uh, an unfortunate thing that, you know, these, these networks were allowed to fester like this for a very long time. Um, they kind of do walk that edge between legality and illegality. And we know the social networks um, or social media companies have been very reluctant to, to really kind of engage in this space. So I think this is um, something we may expect in the future. It's actually really interesting because when I first saw the footage of the attack and the first description, the first thing I thought of was actually Anders Breivik. And yeah. it's clear that Anders Breivik did play an inspired, I mean, it's early days, but just based on what seems to be the case, it, it seems logical to assume this person was very much inspired by Anders Breivik. And like the, the, the similarities in attack are really there. Um, you have a large scale mass killing as well as a car bomb and a manifesto. And, you know, Breivik has, his manifesto has become very, very famous. You know, it's one of the way he lives on. It's one of the way he has been able to perpetuate his legacy. It's disgusting to call it that, but that's what it is. And so I think this individual, in looking at that, recognized that he would also be able to have a similar legacy if he took similar steps and then actually even go that next level and ensure that, you know, that his actions were actually videotaped in real time. In terms of how the federal government is viewing this, how CSIS views this, uh, we had, I mean, I think there, there's some parallels in some ways to uh, ISIS attacks in Europe, like the uh, attack in Paris or the attack on, on Charlie Hebdo. Are, are Canadian authorities likely responding to this in a similar way, viewing it through the lens of, of national security as opposed to viewing it as another mass shooting? So, yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. Um, the answer to that question is they're starting to question um, some of the ways they approach these issues. We, we know that uh, it's been made available in reports that, you know, the national security agencies uh, in Canada are starting to think, okay, maybe we need to move beyond this as a policing issue. Maybe we, you know, we're starting to see similarities with other kinds of violent extremism where national security agencies are actually involved. Um, Such, so for example, transnational connections, um, the kind of a, a real ramping up of the kinds of violence that you see. And I think that um, this, these are what's happened in the past is that, you know, the actual numbers of attacks, that there's actually far more far right violence extremism in Canada than there is Islamist extremism, just in sheer numbers. Um, there's been well over 100 attacks in Canada. But the thing is, these attacks remain very localized. Um, they don't result in the same kind of numbers of killing historically. Um, but what we have seen is that this is starting to shift that these attacks are becoming, um, you know, they're going, they're moving from, say, localized violence to more serious kinds of attacks and drawing on the resources of different kinds of groups. So I think this is where the national security agencies are starting to ask themselves, do we have a place, you know, do we now offer a set of tools that would be useful to help counter this problem? Because that's when you would want to bring them in, um, frankly, if, if we need to kind of up the level of investigations that are, are currently in existence. Mm -hmm. Now, in this instance, we have a country that is a, an intelligence ally of, of Canada's. Does that make the nature of our response or at least the sharing of information in, any different? I think it 
case like this, probably not. Um, I mean, in a case where you have countries who engage in in, in torture or things like that, we have protocols with how we share information that are uh, very uh, strict. But in this particular case, New Zealand, yeah, you're right. It's it's part of the Five Eyes Alliance, along with the UK, US, and and the United Kingdom, and us, of course. but I think any kind of time a Western country, regardless if it's Five Eyes or not, these kinds of incidents happen. What usually happens is that the Canadian authorities on the ground will get the information about the attack going forward. They will then pass that information on to organizations like CFIS and potentially even the RCMP because um, the RCMP and, and provincial police forces have the lead on domestic extremism files and that's largely what this is so what would happen though is they would really they're kind of looking for two things the first is they want to obviously help the new zealand authorities in their investigation but the other thing is that you want to find out if there's any nexus to canada um who has this person been to canada have they traveled to canadians are they did this person talk to canadians prior to committing the attack and if that person did uh what was the nature of those discussions and do we have something that we have to worry about here in canada so that's pretty much what i think is occupying the national security community and police forces today all right well some important points some important insights stephanie carvin thank you so much for joining us here today really appreciate it thank you so much all right that's stephanie carvin assistant professor of international affairs at the norman patterson school of international affairs carleton university her thoughts on the security implications of all of this Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.